Welcome to What Happens Next. Uh, my name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. This week's topics include investing in Internet stocks, raising a thief, and writing fiction. Our first speaker today is Mark Mahaney, who is an equity analyst who covers Internet stocks. He has consistently been ranked among the top analysts by Institutional Investor for Internet Equity Research. And today, Mark will discuss why we should buy stock in Amazon, Uber, and Spotify. Mark has a new book coming out in November entitled Nothing But Net, which provides 10 lessons for internet investing, including focusing on revenue growth and customer service, uh, customer metrics, and not earnings as what matters most to tech investors. Our second speaker is Scott Turow. Scott is a legal fiction writer who has sold more than 30 million books. He is most famous for his works 1L and Presumed Innocent. Scott has a new legal thriller entitled The Last Trial, which is his 11th book set in Kendall County. The Last Trial is based on one of the longstanding characters, attorney Sandy Stern, who represents the CEO of a pharmaceutical business on trial for murder, fraud, and insider trading. Scott Terrell will speak about the conflict of interest inherent in corporate, particip corporate participation in the testing of new drugs. I also plan on chatting with Scott about writing fiction, adapting novels to film, and the creative process. Our final speaker is Paul Podolsky, who is the author of Raising a Thief, about his adoption of a 16-month-year-old girl from Russia who grows up to be a criminal. Paul will speak about lessons learned, including the importance of attachment at an early age, how a troubled child affects family life, and why early intervention is more valuable than support later in life. I would like to extend, expand the What Happens Next audience so that more people can enjoy our programming. I started a social media outreach using Twitter to increase listener engagement. I'm going to continue an experiment today where I include Twitter questions on the live program, so please tweet me, and I'll do my best to include your comments. Our Twitter username is What Happens in 6, where 6 is the number. I want to hear from you, so please tweet what happens at 6, and you can always email me at LarryBernstein1 at gmail.com. Okay, our first speaker today is Mark Mahaney. He is the longest-lasting and oldest equity research analyst in Internet stocks. He works at Evercore ISI. Mark has a new book coming out called Nothing But Net, based on his 25-year experience in picking Internet stocks. It includes 10 lessons for investors. Mark, go ahead. Okay, thanks a ton there. Yes, the book is already available for pre-order on Amazon.com, a company I'm pretty familiar with, having covered it uh, since uh, 1998. What I wanted to do today is um, go through what I think is happening with the Internet uh, sector, uh, and by that I mean some of the Internet advertising names, the Googles and the Facebooks, the Internet subscription names like a Netflix or a Spotify, the retail names like an Amazon or an eBay, the travel names, like an Airbnb and Expedia. I want to talk about the fundamental trends that these businesses are seeing in as we um, emerge, hopefully permanently, from, uh, from COVID, uh, and then uh, talk about valuation trends, and then I'm going to pitch some stocks here, uh, my favorite names in the mega cap, large cap, and small cap uh, space. Some of these names should be familiar to you. Some of them uh, probably won't be, uh, so I'll, uh, I'll, uh, I'll try to cover them, and I'll try to do all this in about six minutes. 
So here we go. What's happening to fundamental demand trends in the Internet today? Net advertising, Internet advertising, I think is one of the most interesting sectors. So this includes Facebook, Google, Pinterest, Snap, Twitter. Most of those are household names. Roku. That is what's undergoing a super checkmark recovery. This was probably the biggest surprise to me over the last you know, 18 months. Internet advertising, like all advertising, just got crushed for a couple of months last March, April, and May. But the growth rates have recovered since then, and more than recovered, they are, they are exhibiting a super checkmark-shaped uh, recovery, i.e. growth rates exiting 2020 were faster than they were exiting 2019 and continue to accelerate in the uh, March quarter and are continuing to accelerate uh, into the June quarter. There are a variety of factors uh, behind this, but um, I think one of the biggest ones is what we've really seen is this surge in new business formation in North America in the last uh, nine months. And a lot of these new businesses, uh, they get their product or the service, uh, they're launch ready, and then they go look to market it, and they market it on these ubiquitous digital platforms like Facebook and, uh, and Google. So uh, ironically, COVID in some ways has really been an accelerator for these uh, businesses. So anyway, I look at internet advertising as kind of a super checkmark shape recovery. Online retail surge that was initially just surge, whereas net advertising got cut. Online retail got boosted, so Amazon saw these record growth rates. So did eBay. eBay grew faster in the middle of 2020 than it had in 15 years. Other companies like Etsy, you know, relatively well-known names. So online retail had this initial surge in growth. And then the question is, as we go facing these tough comps now, um, how sustainable is that growth? And some of these companies are going negative. eBay's growing negative. What's interesting to me is that Amazon is actually sustaining premium growth despite really tough uh, COVID comps. So I refer to them as being a permanent pull forward of demand winner or a COVID winner. The web presence category dramatically benefited from the COVID crisis. I'm talking about Shopify, uh, Wix, GoDaddy, companies like that that helped uh, small businesses and large businesses make sure that they were on the Internet as physical stores shut down. Companies had to have a digital presence. These companies were there. They saw a surge in, in growth for their businesses. And I think is going to be reasonably sustainable post-COVID. Then there's the ride-sharing category. I'll just do two more, ride-sharing and online travel. Ride-sharing, I'm talking about Uber and Lyft. That business is still on its uh, back feet that got uh, knocked down, uh, demand declined as much as 70, 80 percent in some markets. And you still have parts of their business like airport uh, trips, which is one of the biggest use cases for Uber and Lyft. Uh, airport trips are still down 50 percent year over year. Now, leisure airport trips are down less than that. But, of course, business uh, airport trips are down uh, more than that. So that's a, that was a COVID loser. It is a recovery play. And it's going to be a long-tailed recovery play. It's going to take them a while to really get back to 2019 bookings levels, but they will. And then finally, online travel, kind of similar to ride-sharing. That, that category was really clipped, cut off at the knees. And I'm talking about names like Airbnb, Booking, and Expedia. Uh, they probably won't recover to their pre-COVID levels. Airbnb actually already has, but Booking and Expedia won't until sometime in uh, 2022. It may well be deep uh, 22 but as they do, um, uh, those have already had a, a nice recovery in their stock prices to capture that. I think Airbnb is particularly interesting, though, because I think they've actually had a couple of structural wins from the COVID crisis. I think we've, we're going to see leisure travelers in particular uh, broaden their usage of alternative accommodations, which is Airbnb's uh, uh, you know, power alley sweet spot. Uh, uh, so those are kind of the fundamental trends. There's one key valuation trend I would uh, highlight. 
We may be at the end of this trend, but I called it the great derating. You saw um, you saw multiples in this group go through a great re-rating in the back of uh, uh, 2020 through the end of 2020. You had, just to throw out a few numbers, you had the average forward multiple on cash flow or EBITDA reach uh, 23 times at the end of 2020 for a sector that typically traded around 15 times. So those were almost record high multiples for the group. And what what would you expect? You would expect a reversion to the mean. And that's what you're seeing. You've seen these multiples start trimming down since the beginning of the year. It's one of the reasons that growth stocks have underperformed versus value stocks this year. Uh, It's not because estimates have come down. It's because multiples uh, have come down and probably rightly so. Um, There are a few cases where what I'd, I'd love to see is Give me stocks or companies where their forward growth rates have actually accelerated because of COVID, but their multiples have come down. Boy, that would be an interesting uh, combo to invest in. I've got two ideas for you, Roku and Amazon. And I'd also throw in Facebook. Its multiple hasn't come down, but its future growth prospects have increased. Most other stocks, though, re-rated or the multiples went up as their growth prospects increased. There's a few of these interesting uh, exceptions. So now I'm going to wrap up here in about a minute with our top picks. Um, and mega cap, I think the three best ideas here are Amazon, Uber, and Facebook. Uh, Amazon, again, forward growth rates have accelerated because of COVID, yet its multiple has come down. So that's that, that's that, that's that dislocation. It's obviously a super high quality stock. Yes, there's some debate about how well Amazon does in the post Bezos world, but Amazon is so well set up in terms of its retail business advertising and cloud computing for the foreseeable future. So a high quality asset, somewhat dislocated top pick. Uber is our kind of COVID recovery play. Uh, I, I liked it last year, uh, too, but it's one of our uh, top three picks. The delivery business that they have, Uber Eats, has actually been a beneficiary of COVID. And I think ride sharing will come back. It's just a matter of when, not if. This stock could go through a material re-rating, trades at around three, four times EV to sales. I think that could uh, that multiple could go up to five, six, seven times EV to sales. So you can get... 50% growth in a stock just on a re-rating. You don't get that too often. And then Facebook uh, is the number three uh, pick for us. It's been uh, It started to perform nicely. I think they're a great be- beneficiary of what I call social commerce, the idea that people are going to start shopping, doing retail on social media sites. And it's still a company that's got a couple of really interesting option values and probably faces the least antitrust risk of all the major tech uh, platforms because they don't have this conflict of interest owning the marketplace and competing in it that Google has or that Amazon has or that Apple has. In um, the second category of stocks, what I call large caps, so mega caps, the three I just listed, Amazon, Uber, and Facebook, have market caps above $100 billion. Large caps are between 20 and $100 billion. Spotify, I just think, has um, about one-eighth uh, the market cap of the Netflix yet. I think its end market is probably relatively similar it's just how many people have uh, smartphones around the world that will use those for music. Most of them use it for video. Most of them. And the, the price points are relatively uh, similar, at least on the subscription side. Uh, uh, Spotify has been a dislocated uh, stock. It had a really nice run last year on its move into podcasting. And then the market fell out. Of, uh, the stock fell out of favor. It's also one that's not really uh, dramatically profitable. And so uh, those stocks have uh, traded off in a focus on uh, value. But as we recover to growth, I think the market will come back to Spotify. This year, it has its first ever price increase. We think that'll be successful. They've got an 86 country or market expansion. And they've also rolled out a bunch of really nice new product innovations. 
both on the consumer side and on the advertiser side. So I think you've got a fundamental inflection point, i.e. revenue growth, acceleration, margin expansion. So Spotify is a number one pick in this kind of large cap space. And then in the small cap space, and I'm doing less than $20 billion in market cap, and that may be too generous, but I'm doing it anyway. Wix is our number one pick, great digital presence uh, uh, company with uh, millions of uh, users and a couple of hundred thousand of paid subscribers. This has been a very consistent management team. I've tracked this since their IPO eight years ago. Uh, I just love to see these you know, highly innovative companies, very consistent management teams against large market opportunities. Wix is our top pick. Stitch Fix, kind of an online fashion subscription business, highly controversial call here. A reasonably high short interest on the name, but I like it. I think they're a nice COVID recovery name, and I think they've also got some really nice product innovations that we can go through. And finally, GoodRx is our number three pick, and that's a somewhat recent IPO. I IPO'd about six uh, months ago. Their recovery play as physician and pharmacy visits start to uh, recover, and just one of the best what I call crucial combo stocks out there, i.e. they've got high revenue growth and high margins. Uh, they're doing something like 35 to 40% revenue growth with north of 30% EBITDA margins. You don't see that combination too often. I know it's got a high multiple, but that's uh, it's well warranted based on that uh, what I call that high crucial combo. So uh, those are our top three picks in the small cap space. Larry, that's my pitch. Back to you. Fantastic. All right, I want to start um, with Amazon. We had Brad Stone speak on our program a few weeks ago. Um, I want to ask about Amazon as an advertiser. One of the things that's interesting is that when someone wants to buy something, you think they would go to Google first. But lately, there's a trend to go to Amazon to, uh, to find that product, and there we are already on their site and ready to buy. How do you think about Amazon as an Internet advertiser, competitor? Okay. Well, first, Brad Stone, I'm a huge fan. I've read all of his books, so uh, uh, and I also hosted a call with him, too. So he's run, written two books on Amazon one on Airbnb. If you want to understand Amazon as an investor, as an individual, I, I don't think you could find a better book uh, than first the Everything Store, uh, which he wrote, yeah. I forget, five, six, seven years ago. And then most recently, Amazon Unbound, which is kind of the history of Amazon over the last five years and, and particularly uh, kind of a history, much more of a personal deep dive into Bezos himself. So I, I, think, the, I think the world of him, uh, Amazon, it's uh, I've referred to Amazon as the best mixed shift story in tech as a stock. I've been referring to it that way for a couple of years. And what I mean by that is it's great to have your core business, uh, which is Amazon, for Amazon is retail. And it's got good, solid growth. It's had 20% revenue growth for more than a decade. Like that's rare. You extremely rare air, but they've done that. It's a very low margin business, low single digit operating margins. Like we're talking two, three, 4%. Um, but then the faster-growing businesses, that's cloud and that's advertising, they are growing 2 to 3x faster than that core retail business, and they've got dramatically uh, better margins. Uh, both of those are you know, 30% operating margin businesses. So their operating margins are you know, maybe as much as 10 times uh, higher than the uh, margins of the core business, which means you've got this mix shift. You're, the, 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 you're going to have this structural rise in Amazon's operating margins for, you know, for the next five to 10 years as the more the revenue comes from these higher margin businesses. It's a wonderful position to be in. It's kind of like the opposite of Google, which started off with this hugely high margin search revenue. Everything they went into after that had lower margins, and it meant that the margins for the business as a whole kept coming down over, over time. Anyway, Amazon's the opposite, and they've now become – I used to think about advertising, Internet advertising as a duopoly. 
Google, Facebook, Duopoly. I think uh, Amazon has kind of inserted itself in there. And the big advantage Amazon has is that it's the marketplace. And so they can close the loop for marketers like, you know, how your ads do, because you know whether you're when somebody clicked on the, the, your ad, whether they actually bought the product, because it's all on Amazon. So uh, they have really well positioned themselves in this. Now, I do wonder a little bit, and this also came up in Brad's book, about whether they've been a little bit overly aggressive with some of these ads. Maybe there are too many ads. There's a risk that they've eBayed their shopping marketplace. Uh, we've seen falling, um, slightly declining or declining that customer satisfaction scores at Amazon over the last, I'd call it, five, six years. And I think a little of that is due to the kind of the cluttering of the Amazon marketplace with some of these ads. So I think that is a risk uh, for Amazon, and I think that's something they need to correct. Uh, but, you know, there's no question. They are a target-rich environment for anybody who wants to advertise. And who would want to advertise on Amazon? All those companies that are selling products on Amazon. So it's a natural um, commerce marketplace and advertising marketplace, and it has wonderful benefits for Amazon's P&L and therefore for Amazon shareholders. Uh, Jeff Bezos is um, taking a smaller role in Amazon Unbound. Brad Stone also focused on how important Jeff was to going into all these new businesses. Uh, he gave an example of Alexa specifically, where he actually designed the product and sent them off on their way. Um, you know, you mentioned the importance of management teams in your previous discussion of uh, Wix, for example, which you thought was they had a tremendous management team. How central has Bezos been to Amazon's success, and how, how good is that next layer of management to push Amazon into new businesses to really uh, allow for further takeoff? You know, one of the key points I have in uh, my book, uh, Nothing But Net, is the importance of management teams. There's a couple of screens that I try to get people to focus on a uh, level of product innovation at a company. Most consumers can just, they'll have a sense of that. It's, it's almost like, you know, if I could steal from Peter Lynch, you know, like the coffee, buy the stock. Uh, that was Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, if you, if, to, to ruin the analogy, if you see that company rolling out a bunch of different types of uh, coffee and different sizes and, uh, you know, different flavors, uh, you know, that's product innovation in coffee land. Um, uh, uh, so anyway, I, I focus on uh, how innovative uh, uh, companies are in terms of product innovation, how large their market opportunities are, and I look for consistency in uh, in management team. I think I mentioned management team first. Uh, I, that's probably the single most important factor. I prefer to a 4M framework when I look at companies, um, markets, um, 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 business models, uh, competitive moats, and management teams. But the most important M of those four M's has always been management team in my book. And so uh, what I find interesting about Amazon is, you know, this S um, committee, there's the you know, 20, 20 to 25 senior execs, the, the, the longevity, the consistency in that management team has been extraordinary. Uh, like, I, and I don't know why, I have a couple of theories on why it is, but, you know, that, that committee, the, the top lieutenants, the top executives, I mean, they've been with that company for over 15 years. You rarely see that now. You know, you want that if those are good executives, but Amazon's shown some pretty rare um, air type of skills, the ability to succeed in vastly different businesses, retail, advertising, cloud computing, three businesses with vastly different uh, core competencies, very different types of um, uh, business models, very type of um, different types of skill sets, different types of managerial skills required to run these businesses. So that's just really impressive all under one roof by one management team. So the fact that 
that team has been very consistent. And uh, Andy Jassy is an ex-CEO. You know, if you had, if you had uh, any time in the last five years said, well, who'd be the best person to replace Bezos, you would have said one of two people, either Jeff Wilkie, who ran the retail business, has run it for 20 years, but is retiring, uh, and or Andy Jassy, who's been with Bezos for 20 years as well. It may, it may have been 19, but it's close enough to 20, and who ran AWS for all that for good, you know, for the last uh, 10 plus years. Um, you know, like uh, you've got exactly the right person uh, running the business going forwards. I don't think there's going to be any slip up at all in terms of the operational excellence of uh, of Amazon because Jeff now is going to become the executive chairman. Whether there's a slip up in product innovation, that's the question. That doesn't impact earnings in the next two, three, four years. It could impact earnings. Years five from now, years ten from now. The question is: Is somebody else at Amazon going to come up with that aha moment, that aha discovery, that aha new product innovation? My guess is that somebody will be able to do that. They've got enough senior, uh, talented execs, and no one person can ever have everything um, uh, figured out. There are also other risks with Amazon. I think regulation is near the top of that list. Uh, yeah, let's talk about that the, next. Uh, okay, let's talk let's about antitrust. Um, we had. Fiona Scott Morton, Josh Sovin, and Doug Balaman on an antitrust panel uh, back in February. And the focus there was on big tech. And what's interesting is that it seems to be almost bipartisan in their antipathy towards uh, big tech power. Republicans don't like the fact that the, the management teams hate and undermine Republican efforts in speech um, and in uh, support. And the Democrats just don't like big, powerful corporate institutions. And so we have this unique combination of political forces opposed to a big tech. What do you, who do you think is most exposed? How do you think it will play out? Um, and the Biden administration seems to have picked some of their most progressive antitrusters to be their management team in this area. Your thoughts? Your last statement is factually true. If you were going to pick um, one person to head the FTC that was most on the record in terms of being critical of big tech, they picked their. Uh, that's Lena Khan. She's done great ground-breaking uh, work uh, on, um, on the uh, antitrust challenge paradox of um, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you regulate companies that clearly provide great consumer benefits, Facebook, uh, Google. It's free, for Christ's sake. Uh, and then Amazon, not free, but clearly cheaper than most mainstream retail options. Uh, how do you how do you regulate companies like that 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 clearly show uh, great consumer benefits, but um, have also because of their size have such potential for acting anti-monopolistically, uh, acting monopolistically, uh, whether they do or not. So um, anyway, she, they definitely uh, uh, and she wrote one of the definitive pieces on that. So they clearly have somebody who's on the record as being um, uh, very pro-regulation uh, for these. Uh, uh, for these uh, companies. So, yeah, it is a risk. I guess at the end of the day, I think that risk has already been priced in. Uh, this isn't new. Um, there's been, this has been a rising concern for these companies for years. Uh, we've already gone into the fi- $15 billion plus in fines paid by Google uh, and uh, Facebook uh, to regulators for certain actions that they've taken in the past. And there's no question these are aggressive companies. The real conflicts of interest in these new bills that were just introduced uh, are really focused on the conflict of interest areas. Now, that's less of an issue for Facebook, but clearly it's an issue for 
for Amazon, which runs an e-commerce marketplace and competes in said marketplace, and for Google, that runs an online advertising network and competes in that online advertising network. Uh, so the, that's where the conflict of interest uh, issues rise. I doubt that there'll be a forced breakup of these uh, companies. I think it'd be very hard to do. I think at the very least, you've cut off the opportunity for them to do large strategic acquisitions. I think that's just completely off the table. And at some level, that probably dings the growth uh, outlook for these companies. That's why the investors have taken their multiples down a couple of turns. I think Google would probably trade at 28 times earnings rather than 25 if it wasn't for uh, you know, this regulatory risk overhang. So investors need to be careful about it. And so I don't think it's going to, I don't think it'll affect the E for these stocks, the earnings, the earnings growth. I don't think it will materially, at least not in the next two to five years, but it has impacted and will continue to impact the PE, the multiples that, that, that investors are willing to put on those earnings. You know, um, I invest a substantial portion of my net worth in the S&P 500 and then dabble in individual stocks on the side. And one of the most extraordinary aspects of investing in S&P 500 is the amount of exposure I already have to Amazon, Google, Microsoft, Facebook, etc. Um, it's incredible. Um, I think Amazon is more than 5% of the S&P 500. When you think about that, um, I'm already so heavily exposed to Amazon as it is. What do you think the right portion of your portfolio should be in Amazon, given your incredibly positive outlook on the stock? Is it a market weighting? Is, is it less? Is it more? Oh, it should be more than a market weighting. I, I think, uh, you know, if you, want to, <clears throat> if you want exposure to the Internet, if you want exposure to a company that, um, uh, that's a leader in online advertising, online retail and cloud computing, you can do it with a very seasoned uh, management team with an extremely – Good uh, track record and an outlook. I think that's um, rare air. You know, I, 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 in this, in my book, nothing but net. I talk about the twenty percent rule. I love to see companies that can generate consistent twenty percent uh, revenue growth. I, I prize that over almost anything else because in the history of the internet, as I've learned, you know, scale eventually begets profits. Um, you can't generate earnings if you can't generate revenue. And uh, companies that can grow twenty percent year in and year out. Uh, or, or greater, they will scale their, their selves to profitability. And by the way, Amazon now, you know, in the next five years is probably going to be the world's single largest generator of cash flow on an annual basis. Um, and, uh, you know, I was tracking Amazon early on when nobody thought it would ever generate a single penny of profits. Well, they're doing it now and they're doing it in spades. So anyway, I, I think you I think you want to have exposure to uh, Amazon as a high quality. If you want growth uh, in your portfolio, you want a name like Amazon. Amazon's underperformed or traded in line for the last nine, uh, nine months, and that's because the stock outperformed so much last year, so you're going through a, a consolidation phase, but also because the market swung over to value. Why did it swing to value? Because in a, in a, uh, in a, when you're coming off of these terrible COVID comps from last year, Caterpillar and other cyclical companies are growing just as fast as Amazon, but that's not going to be the case when we go deep into 22 and into 23. Then the the, 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 the secular growth premium of Amazon is going to reassert itself, and the market's going to want to bid up more for a company that can, can grow not off of easy um, uh, COVID comps, but in a regular market can grow 20% top line. You just don't get that with the S&P 500. The number of S&P 500 companies that can grow consistently 20% year in, year out, year in, and year out, it's like small single-digit percentage of them, and I'm highlighting for you one of those companies. That's Amazon, great management team, large market opportunities, and, and it's trading at, I think, at a very reasonable valuation. It's actually a slight discount to its historical average 
This is when you step in on Amazon. All right, let's move to Uber for a second. You know, when I think about Uber, I think of it as really two things. I think of it as uh, labor cost and cost of an automobile. And lately, if you look at and try to get an Uber, the prices are much higher uh, to get an Uber than previously, pre-COVID. I, we have just tremendous demand for labor right now uh, all over the economy. And Uber takes advantage of uh, labor markets where they're not completely in sync, where people are looking for in-between jobs or um, they're the marginal labor user. How do you think about Uber's ability to participate in a market where Uber's, where labor is in tremendous demand and where car prices are through the roof? Okay, uh, let's see. So uh, Uber's our number two pick in mega cap space. Um, I think it's one that's going to, and why is it going to work from here? Well, because uh, it's it's um, it's it's drive business, it's ride sharing business. What they call Uber mobility, I think, is still in. It's a COVID recovery play. It's still on a year over year decline, but the declines are getting less and less. So I like you know, fundamental outlook is for a recovering Uber on the ride sharing side on the mobility side, and and then the other side on the delivery side, the eats Uber eats side. That is just a structural winner from uh, from. From COVID, then I've got a, uh, a company, an asset that I think is going to finally reach EBITDA break-even in the back half of this year. And I know what Charlie Munger says about EBITDA, but still, you know, you start, you get positive EBITDA, and then eventually it leads to positive earnings and positive free cash flow. Like it's a trigger; it's it's part of the the, the, the earnings process. And so you start, when, and when they start showing consistent. Uh, profitability. And I think they're going to show this in 2020. You're going to expand a group of investors that get interested in the stock so you can get ahead of that. Uh, I still think that the percentage of people in the U.S. that use ride sharing, I think that penetration can double. It's about 36% of the population, based on survey work we've done, has used uh, ride sharing. I think that number, given the value proposition of, of ride sharing, uh, I think that, that, that penetration can double you know, over the next five to 10 years. You know, it saves money. It saves time. Not, maybe not in this environment, but I'll explain how that's going to change. It's more reliable than taxis or, um, or or public transportation. So I think that can that can double. And then I think the frequency of usage, the, the people who use Uber now, is only about a quarter of them use it on a weekly basis. I think the value prop is so strong that the percentage of people that use ride sharing on a weekly basis can can at least double to get the 50% or higher. So I just like this really like uh, this long growth runway. Near term, there are problems with prices of Ubers, particularly in places like New York City, and that's because there are not enough drivers. Why aren't there enough drivers? I think there's four factors here. First is the stimulus uh, checks have been a bit of a disincentive to get riders in the cars, but that's going to end you know, by the end of this September. So this is a problem that gets resolved in three or four months. Secondly, there were you know, concerns about letting strangers in your car during, uh, you know, during COVID. Well, as vaccination rates rise, that problem is going to get solved. Uh, third is that they had competition from some of the um, food order deliveries, the Instacarts and the DoorDashes. That will remain a factor. But at the end of the day, you'll probably be able to make more per hour driving for uh, ride sharing than you will for food. It's just people pay more to have their bodies driven rather than their burgers driven. And then finally, there there is some friction involved with setting back up on Uber. Like for you and I to go use Uber again, all we have to do is open the app and you know and and click, and you know we're back on as 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 riders. As drivers, you got to get your if you haven't been driving for a year and a half, you got to get your vehicle inspected again. You got to go through background checks again. So there's a little bit of friction, but that'll be worked through. I think you'll see the supply ramp up 
pretty aggressively through the back half of this year. And I think you'll see pricing come down. Value proposition is going to get stronger for Uber. I like buying Uber here before all of that's priced into the stock. I want to talk about Spotify next. Um, it's, uh, I worry about the moat. You know, they have all this content. Um, how do they prevent others from taking that exact same content and providing it on a platform uh, that works? I'd say of our top picks, this is probably our most contrarian uh, call, Spotify. Uh, and the stock, you know, for what it's worth, for bulls, it's off 30% plus, um, at least from its peak uh, earlier this year. Uh, let's see. Why I like Spotify. You've got a, a large end market. I think it's a $100, $125 billion end market. And you can think about, you know, the 3 billion smartphones. I mean, every smartphone, if you were to pull a thousand smartphones worldwide, what percentage do you think would have some sort of music app on that front screen? I don't know, 99% or something like that. Like people, people probably listen more to music on their phones than they do talk with people on their phones. So it's a large end market. This is the, and this is the global streaming leader. Based on survey work we've done, they have far surpassed um, Apple Music, Pandora, uh, Amazon Music, Google YouTube Music. Like this is the global leader in uh, both on a subscription basis, the number of subscribers. They've got 200 million paid subscribers worldwide. And I, and I think that number can double or triple in the next uh, five to 10 years. I just think they're good. And then they also have 2 million other people who are ad supported. Uh, and I also think that number can double or triple in the next five to 10 years. So I just think there's a lot of growth ahead of them. It's a large market. They're the leader in the market. The pushback on it is the business model. Uh, and um, uh, the business, the, the risk is this is a, this isn't Netflix where there's just a whole bunch of different video um, uh, operators or uh, film producers, TV series producers, et cetera. This is music where there are four major labels and they have a chokehold on industry economics. And that's why gross margins at Spotify are 25%. That's an issue. But the advantage that Spotify has is as they get bigger and bigger, their leverage versus the labels is going to expand. And then as they become bigger and bigger, they get to layer in more uh, products and services and it'll get better economics of them. On the, and a great example of that is podcasting. This company invested aggressively in podcasting two years ago before the market really understood just how big podcasting could be. And now when they get ad revenue on podcasting, they don't have to share that ad revenue with the labels. So you're going to see gross margins start to rise here. This is a little bit akin to Amazon. I think that there's just a lot of room. Every new product and service that, that Spotify is rolling out is accretive to gross margins. That's going to that's gonna directly uh, upset the bear argument that this is a structurally low-margin business. And by the way, you can make money with structurally low-margin businesses as long as the trend is going the right way on those gross margins. I think you're going to see Spotify gross margins go up. And then there are three things going on with Spotify this year. Again, they're rolling out a price increase. Uh, globally, I think it's going to be successful. I don't think churn's going to rise. I think the value proposition is strong enough for Spotify. Secondly, they've launched into 86 uh, new country markets, some of them which are very small countries, but there's some big ones in there like Nigeria, and music is really a global market. And then uh, third is they've launched some really nice product innovation, even on the advertising side, what they call streaming ad insertions in the podcasting to make the ads more personalized better targeted. And um, anyway, I just like that the level of product innovation at this company. So I like Spotify, just like Uber. I think there's multiple, I think there's a real re-rating opportunity. It trades at three times EV to sales, enterprise value to sales. I think that multiple can go to four to five. And so I'm saying that you can get, you, you, the, the stocks go up because the earnings, the, the earnings go up over time as earnings growth. 
But then the, the stocks, if you also tell me that the stock can re-rate, that the multiple on said earnings can go up, that's two, That's a two-barreled approach to stock price appreciation, which is what, what we're all trying to get. So when I get those opportunities, you know, like I like to find stocks that can double in the, in the, score, in the course of three, uh, three years. That means you can do kind of, if you keep your PE or your, you know, your valuation multiple, you need kind of compounded 25% growth. But if I can show you compounded 25% growth and a multiple that can go up higher, then you can get a double in two years. And that's where you, I get super excited about stocks. I think Spotify is exactly at that position now. And again, this is a contrarian call. That's what allows the stock to double in two years if I'm right on the fundamentals. So Spotify is one of our top picks, uh, and it's our probably amongst the largest cap stocks. It's probably our most contrarian long. Thank you so much, Mark. Uh, Appreciate it. You're welcome. Our next speaker is Scott Turo. Uh, Scott and his wife, Adrienne, are very good friends of Julia Mine. Uh, Scott is one of the leading legal fiction writers. Uh, he has a new book out called The Last Trial, which is set in Kendall County and is his 11th book in his series that started with his book, Presumed Innocent. The Last Trial is a story about a, a trial of a pharmaceutical CEO for murder, fraud, and insider trading. Scott will tell us about the conflict of interest that the pharmaceutical industry has with testing new drugs. Scott, take it away. Thanks, Larry. Um, you know, I decided that uh, although I expect to get beyond this in my discussion with Larry, that it, it's hard to uh, deliver a soliloquy about the creative process and that uh, generally, when you're talking about a novel, it's easier to focus on uh, issues. And because I am a lawyer by training, uh, you know, I tend to gravitate toward social policy issues. Uh, so I, I wanted to talk a little bit about what uh, has been on my mind in the pandemic days. Uh, the last trial came out in May uh, was first published in hardcover in, in May of 19, of 2020. And that, of course, was right at the height of the pandemic, which uh, for, for, uh, for, for authors, it was um, a good and bad time. For well-established authors, it was fine. Uh, for less well-known authors, it was not. Uh, but uh, it turned out that uh, that there was something topical about the novel and that um, the pandemic itself had focused immense attention on the clinical testing process uh, in the hope that there would soon be uh, a, a quick approval of various uh, vaccines that would be effective against the disease, something that in point of fact came to pass. And so people often said to me, uh, gosh, you know, how are you so prophetic? Uh, everybody wants to know about the clinical testing process and, uh, you know, because of the COVID vaccines. And here's your novel that focuses on uh, the clinical testing of another uh, medication, this uh, an extremely successful anti-cancer agent. Uh, and uh, not only does the novel talk about the uh, testing process, which is not usually the fodder for popular fiction, uh, but it also demonstrates some of the hazards of rushing a product like that uh, to the market, which of course the, the, 
vaccine, which was in the way people were thinking about it, a, pra- a proxy for the vaccines. And uh, much of, I think, the uh, vaccine hesitancy that we're seeing in you know, many populations now has to do with that sense that the um, that the hazards uh, of the of the vaccine may not be known for decades, which frankly is true. Uh, you balance it against the known risks of COVID, which uh, all I can tell you is I rushed to get vaccinated myself. Um, but certainly, I'm no prophet, and uh, and I'm no expert on pharmaceutical testing either. Uh, everything in the last trial I learned from research. Uh, and uh, as uh, my friend Robert Parker, the late Robert Parker, once said when we were doing a panel together uh, during the Chicago Humanities Festival, uh, I'm just a good typist. And, uh, you know, what Parker meant in the case of his own research was that, and I would say the same for mine, is all I did was write down what I read. So I don't offer the following remarks as somebody who professes to be uh, expert in the subject. I'm just I'm basically another layperson who's thought about it a little bit. Um, but, uh, you know, the, the pharmaceutical testing process has been criticized from many angles. Um, health advocacy groups often contain bitterly about the way uh, the FDA belabors the approval process. Some of that, um, the outside pressure um, from uh, agitated voters who contact their congressional representatives can um, perhaps contributed to the recent approval of an extraordinarily expensive Alzheimer's medication called Adjahelm, which the FDA had originally turned down uh, because it found the research Uh, unconvincing. And and by the way, when I say the FDA, that usually involves an outside panel of experts who are assisting the agency. And then it was that the same data was reanalyzed both by the drug maker and at the pressure of these advocacy groups who said Alzheimer's is a horrible disease. Um, We have to be able to do something about it. This is the only hope we've got. Um, And now the, now the, drug is on the market. There are often complaints about, uh, and well-founded ones, about the incredible increase in drug costs that the testing process precipitates, uh, both because it's so elaborate uh, and because as a result of it, um, many, many more products than come to market um, founder uh, and uh, the huge costs that have been spent on testing and research uh, end up getting rolled into uh, the the margins on the drugs that do make it to market, uh, and then there are the you know just the famous episodes where the drug testing process has fallen on its behind. Um, you know the one that's always uh, nearest and dearest to my heart is Viox, uh, where it turned out that um, researchers within Merck were well aware that the that the medications seemed to be causing heart problems for a select group of patients and you know and they basically through a, sort of a typical corporate um communication through multiple levels eventually um 
made a sort of uh, collective decision, which went along inch by inch, to suppress that information. Uh, and it's always bothered me because, um, you know, I have a bad back. I took Vioxx. I loved it. Uh, it was really successful for me. And my internist has always said, based on what he saw, uh, had the debilitating heart effects been published, he still would have recommended Vioxx for me at least, uh, you know, 20 years ago when I was younger and um, certainly as now without a history of heart problems. Or you have Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos, which was just an out-and-out fraud. So the, the question is, is there a better way to do this? And uh, what gets thrown out in the middle of the novel um, is a supposed uh, article that was written by the uh, government's FDA expert who's testifying in this prosecution of Kirill Pafko. Uh, and what she has written as follows. If Massachusetts announced tomorrow that it was going to license persons to operate something as potentially dangerous as a motor vehicle on the basis of a test drivers had given themselves, the response would almost certainly be national outrage. And yet, with billions of dollars at stake and, more important, hundreds of millions of lives, we allow America's pharmaceutical industry to test the safety and efficacy of their products for the public marketplace on their own with limited government oversight. We can hardly profess surprise when that pro process produces unreliable, even fatal results. And I, ha I have to say that um, I'm, I'm sort of spitballing here, uh, but having thought about it um, for months and recognizing that there may be powerful counter arguments, I still think that's a better way uh, to run the railroad uh, for, for several reasons. Uh, presumably the government would bill uh, the, pharma the pharmaceutical company uh, for the cost of the drug testing. And we would presume then that the, all, the, the entire operation takes place inside the government, inside the FDA, or perhaps a separate agency that were necessary. Uh, and then a basically uh, the drug manufacturer would pass the costs along to consumers um, of the successful tests and the unsuccessful products. Uh, and uh, I can't see that at the end of the day um, that it would increase costs very much because uh, that's exactly what um, the pharmaceutical manufacturers are doing now. They're passing along their drug testing costs in, uh, in the cost of medications. And um, I became far more sympathetic to the pharmaceutical manufacturers in the process of writing the book when I realized how many medications fail in the testing process. And the, the, they're far, far, far more numerous than the number of drugs that come to market. But the unsuccessful drugs are still being paid for by the successful drugs. And, um, and, and the, I would imagine that the, that the cost recovery scenario, if we suddenly had a government agency in charge of drug testing, would be exactly the same. 
what it comes down to is the usual uh, liberal versus conservative arguments about whether the government can do anything well. Uh, but I do think that the current hybrid system where uh, private industry um, first tests the product and then has to go through an elaborate approval process within the FDA, that may be giving us the worst of both worlds. Uh, the, um, it, it's got to be more efficient to have uh, a single set of governmental actors involved rather than letting uh, industry go out, usually they hire a clinical research organization. They pay, uh, they pay the CRO to do research all over the world. Uh, they recruit patients and doctors and uh, so-called investigators. Uh, and uh, then the government comes along and looks at everything that they've done. Uh, and uh, as I said, I think a unitary system uh, might be more uh, efficient. And uh, probably um, could lead to uh, faster approval of medications uh, and certainly uh, one with um, less uncertainty, uh, you know, the, about the potential corruption of results that comes when uh, drug companies are testing their own medication. Uh, I uh, the, the other thing ab about this is that, that amuses me is that the our drug testing regimen exists side by side with um, sort of the ultimate free market model, which is imposed by the law. Um, we have in the current tort regime uh, a system where um, in, instead of buyer beware, it's manufacturer beware. Uh, and the pharmaceutical products are one of the few uh, products that come out to the marketplace with a strict liability, um, uh, with strict liability attached to them, meaning something goes wrong with the drug and somebody gets sick from taking it, the drug manufacturer is liable without any proof of negligence uh, or any other kind of misconduct. Uh, and yet, certainly that system hasn't made anybody feel safer or, or more secure uh, on its own. We still have all of this misfiring and all of these additional costs. So, as I said, I just float that out there at the, at the start of our discussion, Larry, um, as one possibility, which is when it comes to drug testing, would we be better off if the government just took that over uh, and, uh, you know, passed the cost back to the drug companies with the understanding, of course, that consumers would pay for it eventually? So, Scott, uh, uh, before we get into the creative process, let's focus in on this conflict of interest. Um, so the pharmaceutical industry is not alone in its uh, self-regulatory procedures. Um, I was thinking of, um, you know, the finance industry, which does it, right. um, and others. Uh, I was thinking more recently, like the rating agencies. Uh, the rating agencies are mm -hmm. supposedly these private companies evaluating uh, other firms' creditworthiness, um, yet they get paid by those same companies to do that analysis, creating the conflict. Yet they also want to maintain their reputation as someone who can do the job. Uh, the government doesn't do any credit analysis, um, but regulates the rating agencies who do it. Um, yet that seems to work pretty well, except when it doesn't, 
I mean, uh, <laughs> the subprime <laughs> debacle example. where it was rated triple <laughs> in 2008. Yeah. Yeah, it was a complete catastrophe, and it highlighted that catastrophe. Uh, yeah. I could think of another one, which uh, my wife was involved in, uh, as Equity Research. Our, our first speaker um, is an equity research analyst, and she uh, she noticed that you know in order to get the IPO business, she had to recommend the stock uh, as an equity analyst, and she lost her willing, ability to. Uh, give her free opinion because of that conflict of interest. So it exists in our society. Um, Yet um, it's not clear to me that the government would necessarily be, would be a better job. How do you think of the other, uh, this is not alone. How do you think about the fact that we, we have this conflict all the time and we deal with it in these sort of ways? You know, I I don't know that the the rating agencies, because they're independent entities um, are, are really good, um, example: What w- w- the, the, it would be fully comparable would if a bond issuer uh, were also giving uh, itself uh, a seal of approval as to its creditworthiness, uh, and then uh, they might say, "Well, you know, we've asked uh, we've asked our accountants about it. They say we they say we look good, uh, and then you know, with 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 the bond issuer having said, you know, this is all, this is all very wholesome. We're in great shape financially, and government, uh, you can come in for five minutes and see if we did something wrong in our analysis. Um, you, you can, you know, exactly what the hazards would be. The bond issuer needs the money; they want the money, uh, and so you know the conflict is great. The pharmaceutical companies have immense amount of money. Uh, invested in the research uh, for all of these medications. Uh, and indeed, as I said before, it's one of the things that made me sympathetic, more sympathetic to them than I expected to become in the process of doing this research. But, uh, you know, the conflict is obvious when they say, go out and test your own medication. And we have a little bit of a buffer now in the way that yeah. drug companies do it. The, the whole testing operation or regime proved to be um, so expensive um, and probably antagonistic to the rest of the corporate function that it's typical now for a pharma company to hire an outside entity called a clinical research organization. And, you know, and they do the, they do the actual testing uh, usually with subjects around the world. Um, And, uh, you know, People like Jean Le Carré have made novels about the uh, potential exploitation of third world populations by these uh, by the CROs. But you know th- that that's a that's a complete aside. The the problem is that the CRO um, is really not totally independent. Uh, yeah, they have to maintain their reputation with the FDA. Uh, otherwise, the FDA presumably will stop respecting their results. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot of pressure from the companies that hire them. And in some ways, the existence of the CROs uh, allow, um, you know, people within the company to be um, much more unhindered advocates for getting the drug on the market because they've got the CRO there as a kind of buffer. So, um, you know, I, I admit, 
uh, it would be a strange world where the government uh, did something more efficiently uh, than industry. But I, it just seems that we've got layer on layer in the current way of doing things. Uh, if I were the, and if, if I were the pharma manufacturers, I'd be ecstatic about this because presumably the the liability problems would go away with it. The government did all the testing, then it's um, like you know, look to them if there's something wrong with this drug. All we did was make it and give it to them. So uh, there are advantages for industry in in this kind of new regime as well. And um, and I, you know, I have, go ahead. Let me try to take go. take a different direction for a second. I want to I want to go to the creative process for a sec. So um, my daughter Han and I have been reading the, uh, your novel and finished it this week, and. My daughter said to me, um, I don't understand how Scott Rowe got me so engrossed in a fictional insider trading case when normally I would be completely indifferent to it in real life. Um, Scott, how do you, how do you uh, catch us, uh, engross us uh, in the detail of these sort of nuanced conflicts, etc.? Well, um, obviously that's the goal. Um, some of it has to do with transmitting um, the necessary information in, in bite-sized and digestible bits. But um, I hope what works well in my books uh, is, and what takes people through them, is um, you know some of the values of you know of, of, of the old-fashioned realist novel in the sense of involvement with the characters and, um, you know, a sense that the characters are complete and human and like you and ergo, you care about their problems, which in this case happens to be the trial of an insider trading case. You know, um, my favorite uh, English speaking playwright is this guy named Alan Akeborn. Um, and he has a book called uh, writing and directing plays and in the book, he says that um, what he tries to do before he starts to write the play is he imagines an industrial spring. And in Act 1, Scene 1 of the play, he pushes as hard as he can uh, in that first scene, and then he releases the spring in the second scene, and then he feels like the play writes itself. And as I, as I read your book, uh, The Last Trial, um, it's exactly the same sort of thing. You kind of pushed against the spring, and then, um, boom, uh, the dialogue, you create a situation where the dialogue writes itself. You can just, I imagine it's very easy for you to say, oh, here's the scene, here's the witness, here's the trial lawyer. Uh, I can just see it exploding. In what sense, do, right. in preparation of your novel, do you, do you set the industrial spring? Well, you, I, I mean, first of all, I think Dick Bourne's description is, uh, completely accurate, um, and if you're talking about um, the quote-unquote formula behind most popular narrative, whether we're talking about TV or movies or um, you know or literature in its various forms, novels and plays, and, um, it, it's it's all the same way. You know, it, it's conflict first that what you're calling the spring, uh, you know. Faulkner said it was about the human heart in conflict 
with itself, which to me means that the conflict has always got to involve uh, values that are central uh, to the characters. Uh, but uh, you you put the characters in uh, a state of moral, if not physical, peril, uh, and then um, you know let it in Aikburn's Aikburn's terminology unwind and spring open. And uh, you know I, I in terms of being uh, somebody who practiced law for a long time and still does a little bit and. Um, the I, I always caution my friends who are um, my fellow trial lawyers who are nice about the courtroom scenes, and I, I do say it's a lot easier to write cross examination where you not only make up the questions but also the answers. And um, you know, there's a certain a, a way of letting it unfold by you know having having the witness blunder. Uh, you know, in a way that, you know, fits into the the overarching plan of the story. But, you know, yeah, gen- generally, um, you know, that's what we're all doing, uh, which is, you know, getting, getting things set up um, so that they unfold, they spring open, and uh, the, the, the people who come along um, with that internal momentum that's created by first pushing on the spring and then releasing it, uh, are you know God willing the audience, uh, the, the 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 readers, the theater goer, the viewer, um, they're they're all along for the ride. You know, um, we did a book club years ago, Scott, where we invited Judge Richard Posner to to mm-hmm. chat with us about his book, uh, Law and Literature, and what. Posner was trying to tell us was that we could learn a great deal about the law through a fictional setting. And one of the aspects about your series of books on, on Kindle County um, is it really highlights the battle between the prosecutor and the defense. And when you watch TV programs like Law and Order, there seems to be a greater element of seeking the truth and fact-finding as part of the show. But in your books, it's more about this battle with almost an indifference mm-hmm. to the truth. How do you think mm-hmm. about why you focus so much more on the battle and de-emphasizing uh, truth-seeking, which is um, supposedly uh, at the core of how the legal system is meant to be uh, decided? Well, um, my answer would be because for the actual um, courtroom participants, if we're talking about the lawyers um, and uh, you know, in a yeah. lawsuit, a judge is supposed to be almost, you know, a, a neutral umpire. If that's if that's what we're talking about, from an advocate's point of view, um, that's exactly what's happening, which is it's a contest. And the, the theory of our adversary uh, system is that, uh, the, that the truth will emerge uh, when, um, you know, each side um, fiercely contests the facts uh, and presents them in a way that is most um, that, that 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 sheds the best light on the side that's that that the lawyer represents. I've, I've never, by the way, been completely sold on this. 
as a as a truth finding model mm-hmm. um and uh y- you know very often um for example, as a prosecutor, uh, I learned once I left the U.S. Attorney's Office that um, I was a little less persuasive than than I thought I was when I was a prosecutor. And it turns out that the inherent prejudice that a jury brings into the courtroom where they think, well, you know, this guy works for the government, he's got nothing to gain, uh, and I don't like criminals anyway, um, makes, you know, makes it a, a a less than even fight between prosecution and defense. But, uh, and I, as a prosecutor, never prosecuted anybody. I didn't believe in every fiber um, to be guilty. But, um, so, you know, th- th- and, that, and that's an important limitation when you're talking about the prosecution of, of criminal cases, which is frankly a luxury that, prosecutors in the federal courts who who pick and choose their cases have over their uh, many of their state court um, colleagues who are very often presented with a case that's going forward because the police have uh, filed a complaint and the case is going to be tried, period. Um, so, but, you know, at, at the, <laughs> on the, on the level of the trenches, um it it is simply um it's simply about putting your best foot forward and the the one limitation that exists of course is um in the system of legal ethics which say that uh, you can't lie to the court uh you can't present evidence that you know to be false you can't coach uh, your witnesses uh, to say things that you know to be untrue just just because it's convenient for your side. Um, and, you know, even that gets observed in the breach. Uh, I remember, um, you know, one of my favorite federal judges who is now a blessed memory, but Prentice Marshall was just a wonderful trial lawyer became a federal district court judge. And I, uh, and I remember judge Marshall giving us a, you know, sort of continuing legal education expert. And he was talking about watching Phil Corboy, um, now also a blessed memory, prepare witnesses and the way Corboy would yell and scream at his witnesses to get them to come out with the right answers. And, um, and I'm thinking, Holy smokes, Judge! I'm not supposed to do that. I'm not supposed to yell and scream at the witness uh, down in my office in the U.S. Attorney's office till he says what I want him to say. But you know, as far as Marshall was concerned, that was part of the adversary system. And let me give, let me give you another example of sure. uh, lack of truth seeking um, and how the the battle. Uh, is more important. And I'll go back to Presumed Innocent for a second. Uh, in sure. Presumed Innocent, you had the following scene. Um, the the prosecution is, is trying to make the decision of whether or not they should do a search uh, of Rusty's house. And they mm-hmm. say, oh, well, if we do the search, um, we're probably not going to find anything. And if we don't find anything, that will hurt us in the trial, in the battle. Um, right. It turned out to be a critical scene. What um, 
shouldn't shouldn't the basis of the prosecution to need to do the search, whether it hurts them in the trial or not, in the in the balance of public policy to uh, be truth seeking? Yeah, the answer is sure. Yeah, they should do the search. But here's the other side of it, which is if I believe that Rusty is guilty, which those prosecutors certainly did, certainly did, and I know that he's a canny veteran of the criminal justice system. And, you know, he's not going to have hidden the murder weapon at home, for example. Uh, Then uh, all I am doing is uh, letting him take advantage of his skill uh, at subterfuge and subverting the system by doing the search. And uh, so ergo, I'm sitting in my prosecutor's office, I say, I'm really assisting the truth-finding system by not not doing the search search. because, um, you know, how stupid could he be that he'd still have the murder weapon at home? And I I offer that um, response because, as you know, the murder weapon was still at home. So, um, but, you know, sometimes... Sometimes you don't know everything when you're sitting in the prosecutor's office. And, you know, go. that's – go ahead. Go, so I want to try one final angle on you. Um, we had Julie Solomon, who is the former Wall Street Journal and New York Times film critic. Uh, mm-hmm. She wrote a book about the making of Bonfire of the Vanities. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the book, she interviews Tom Wolfe to discuss uh, adapting a novel for film. And Wolfe mm-hmm. says something like, look, there's, there are completely different art forms – um, it's not even clear to me that I will even enjoy uh, the bonfire of the vanities in the film stage, but I recognize the challenge and uh, how hard it is to uh, turn what is a multi-hundred-page book into dialogue and visual image to express mm-hmm. a similar mm-hmm. uh, sort of art mm-hmm. form. A number of your books have been turned into films. How do you mm-hmm. think about uh, adapting novels to film and the challenges thereof and its difference of art form? Well, I, I do agree with Tom, um, also now a blessed memory. Um, it, it's, it's very, very hard and it's hard for a number of reasons, uh, you know, to engage in uh, real heavyweight name dropping. George Lucas once said to me talking about this very issue, um, that, you know, the, the, the movies as they're currently structured, which is to say, running an hour and a half to two hours. So we're not talking about streaming series, but what George was talking about was the, the, the movie as we used to know, know it, the theatrical release. So it's basically a short story medium and you're better off adapting a short story than a novel where the, the principal art of adapting a novel for uh, a screenplay is figuring out what to leave out uh, and if you are leaving it out, how to make sure there's still integrity in the story. And uh, when I've been asked how to do this, as I have frequently, I sometimes, you know, scratch my head and it's like, you know, well, I don't know, take, you know, take your Cartier off your wrist and open, open the thing up and figure out, you know, how many parts you can take out of it. Uh, and it'll still tell time, you know, every, everything. Uh, you know, it's, it's like that watch where all the gears fit inside one another. And uh, it, it, it is hard to do it well. And 
it's one reason that although I have done some screenwriting in my late age, I've never been t- tempted to adapt one of my own books because as, as I've said, it's like performing surgery on yourself. I didn't put it in the novel because I thought, you know, a particular scene or character was dispensable. I put it there because I thought it was part of that, you know, coherent imagined world that I was trying to create. Uh, and so the leaving out is the first skill uh, of the really good um, adapter for the screen. One final question for you. Uh, we had Algene Hermetz speak about the movie Casablanca last week on mm-hmm, What Happens Next. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. her focus on why she thought it was so successful related to uh, ambiguity um, that the screenwriters didn't have to answer every question and left a lot of things unknown. Um, to what extent do you use ambiguity in your art form, uh, not answering every question, but letting the, uh, letting the, the, the reader be confused, uh, not knowing what was truth or not uh, as part of the experience? Well, not everybody will agree with this, but I, <laughs> I, think, the, I think the novel um, and narrative in general is always about ambiguity. If you could state the problem and the answer simply, uh, then you would not need to read, you know, 350 pages about it. Um, But it's, you know, it's that interaction of complex moral problems uh, and uh, human beings uh, that produce um, something that's both involving, and one of the reasons it's involving is because uh, in many ways it's unclear. Um, you know, it's not only did Rusty do it, but if he knows who the murderer is, you know, should he turn that person in? And, right. you know, and, and, and if, if the lifelong prosecutor says, I'm not going to turn the true murderer in, what the hell does that say about the justice system? in which, you know, to which he's supposedly devoted fealty for his entire adult life. Um, that That's obviously ambiguous. And, um, and you know, and, and that's how I like it. Uh, when Sidney Pollack said to me when he was talking about presumed innocent, what's the one thing you want me to leave? I looked at him, I said, the shades of gray. And, yeah. um you know that that but that to me is really the essence of um of of really worthy narrative art is the ambiguity perfect scott uh, stick with us our, our next speaker i would like you to join me in the moderation and the questions so our next speaker is uh is paul podofsky he has written the book uh um my let me get the right raising a thief a memoir Uh, Paul, why don't you take us away on what happens if your child is a criminal? Thanks. Uh, In 2001, my wife and I adopted a 16-month-old child from Russia. She had been treated badly before we took her in, starved. Our belief was that because she was so young, our warm home would allow her to bounce back and our family to blossom. I was wrong. I wrote the story. Uh, about the lessons learned, and three stand out. First, the roots of conscience, curiosity, 
and resilience begin with the relationship of child to primary caregiver. This is called attachment. This process was first documented by English psychiatrist John Bowlby in the 1930s. When this bond is ruptured, a child's brain changes, which can lead to lying, stealing, even homicide. Number two, a family with a difficult member often requires structural shifts. While the specific type of challenge varies in each family, be it mental illness, alcohol dependency, etc., a difficult family member forces a reckoning. In our case, I had to up my game as a father. And lesson number three, an ounce of prevention is worth pounds of attempted cure. Once a child has been damaged, it can be surprisingly difficult to treat. In our case, multiple approaches failed. The U.S. spends about 0.5% of GDP on early childhood intervention below the OECD average. I think the risk-reward of very high investment in early childhood spending is probably enormous. So a little bit more on each lesson below. The first lesson about the relationship of a child to a caregiver. The next time you watch a parent with a very young child, pay close attention. I witnessed this scene with friends last week. An infant getting a bath, utterly defenseless. The infant slipped in the tub, got scared at the sudden movement, and squawked. Mom instantly picked her up, wrapped her daughter in a dry towel, and said, you're okay. Neurologically, something fundamental just occurred. The child was distressed, heard, and soothed. This micro-interaction built trust in mom and the world. Dr. Bowlby was initially trying to figure out why children steal. At the time, psychiatrists were in the thrall of Freud and believed childhood theft was due to repressed sexual fantasy. Bowlby disagreed and found that in many cases, the tie to the thieves' primary caregiver had recently been severed due to death, illness, or war. Bowlby said theft was, quote, a childhood disease, end of quote, like mumps. Both the timing and the severity of the disruption are predictive. The earlier it occurs, the worse the effects. Lying on a cot in a Russian communal apartment, her screams for food unanswered, our daughter's brain was being rewired. She developed an attachment disorder. Attachment disorder leaves a child emotionally disjointed, even if they are physically and intellectually robust. Like many mental health issues, the severity exists on a spectrum. My wife was kidnapped as a child in Pakistan, yet she is not only intact, but flourishing. The difference, according to Bowlby's theory, is the timing of the disruption. My wife was eight. Lesson number two, the need for family structural shifts. It's easier to see how things are put together when they fall apart. That's true in financial markets, and it is true in families. When we adopted our daughter, we were ecstatic. My wife and I had been married for six years. We had an adorable biological son, so we were broken in as parents. I worked as a banker, my wife as a teacher. We also knew Russia well. My wife is Russian. We met when I worked as a reporter there in the early 1990s. However, as soon as our daughter could walk, she tried to run away. As soon as she could talk, she began to lie. When she was old enough to be out of an adult's field of vision, she began to steal. These behaviors continued right through to adulthood when she was convicted of fraud. She's now 21. Many of her childhood transgressions were, in isolation, insignificant. 
She lied about tooth brushing or homework or washing her hands after the toilet or cleaning a room or logging into another family member's computer, petty theft, bullying, etc. All kids lie. Her inability to interact in any other mode was what made her behavior notable. She forced us all to shift. I had to up my game. Too often, I had subtly dismissed my wife, who was faster than I at seeing what was going on. I have also had to set firm boundaries with our now adult daughter. There are conditions to unconditional love, both in terms of what I had to expect from myself and others. And the last lesson about early childhood spending. My wife and I tried every intervention modern medicine has to offer, psychotherapy, behavior modification, pharmacology, residential treatment, wilderness therapy, parenting coaching, diet, neurofeedback. Nothing fundamentally changed her underlying antisocial behavior. Dr. Bowlby believed early intervention was key. While we took our daughter to a leading hospital in Boston and had a team of specialists evaluate her, no one either warned us about the risk or, once symptoms were present, accurately diagnosed her until she was nine. Too late. My conclusion is that you want to do everything possible to prevent this from happening in the first place. Of all the models that seem closest to preventing this, what Jeffrey Canada has done with, Char with Harlem Children's Zone makes the most intuitive sense to me. They begin working with families the moment the child is born in the belief that, quote, today's newborns are tomorrow's college graduates, as they say. My motto, based on our experience, would be socialism for infants, personal responsibility, for adults. Thanks. Thanks, Paul. Um, I want to uh, comment on uh, something you mentioned um, in the pregame, which related to how your publish publishers were worried about publishing your work because of its anti-adoption message. So I wanted to kind of drill into that a little bit. Yep. Um, what, uh, what lessons have you learned um, about adoption. You know, in the book, you talk about how, um, you know, you got a video of the child before you met her. Um, you show the video to some experts locally. They said she looked fine. Um, you know, you did some investigative work when you got to the Russian um, uh, orphanage, but it was a problem. It was a pro the, the process they worked in the orphanage was, was problematic. Um, what lessons have you learned about who to adopt, how to adopt, and that entire process to minimize your risk. Right. It's, it's a lot. Uh, there's a lot there. So first of all, I come out of this whole process, even though it was wrenching for us, uh, pro-adoption. There's something like 140 million orphans in the world, according to the last measure by the UN. And I think that, the, uh, you know, I support the process of uh, bringing them in. Um, I think the the the, the key element is that you want to get as much information um, about the child as possible. And the adoption process, understandably, is very focused on making sure the adoptive families are safe for the child, given the enormous power differential. I get that. But I also believe that there should be much more work to try to get the adoptive families a lot of information um, about the kid. And given where we were adopting the kid, not surprisingly, the local medical professionals there were not used to the type of extreme distress that our child had suffered, starvation. That wasn't a common problem in Brookline, Massachusetts, 
which is right. where we're living. But historically, it's a very common problem. You know, when are there a lot of orphans created? Well, during wars and famine and these massive disruptions. COVID, by the way, is for sure orphaning on many kids. And the, the, the thing that I think that would be much better in adoption and why I thought this book was worth writing uh, was to highlight, hey, this is the range of outcomes you can have. And you want to be hypersensitive to the uh, early childhood care that the child you're adopting um, received. And I think we, my wife and I, and I wrote about this in the book, we would have done many things differently if at the outset we had understood how attachment worked. But a little bit like, like a disease like what? that had happened long ago, it had been forgotten. Can you give an example of how you would have behaved differently if you had known she was under so much stress and had attachment issues? Um, yeah. So we had, as I uh, described in the opening remarks, we had one biological son uh, and then her. So my key thing bringing her into the home was you, you want to treat the two children the same. And it's an interesting thing. You, you know, people have asked me this. Do you distinguish at all between the kids? I can say as a father, the minute we adopted her, we didn't. It may sound incredible to anybody who hasn't adopted a kid, but the minute that she was my responsibility, I did not differentiate between her at all, between my son and her. And so we very much focused on doing the types of things we had done for our son. We had a very active social life. So we had people coming in and out of our house all the time. Many of them were curious to meet her. She was incredibly independent at a very young age, which is, by the way, typical for kids with this disorder. Um, they can have a pathological uh, independence. And what we should have done, as opposed to just sort of going with the flow, is when we brought her home, we probably should have not had any guests coming to our home. Just focus on mom, dad, and her brother. I should have asked for a leave of absence from work. My wife was teaching. She should have done the same thing. So it was just really hammering home that here is this family. We're safe. We're present. In terms of feeding her, she was very independent, as I said, feeding herself. We should have put her on our knee and gone through the same steps you would have with a much younger child, fed her, and done as much as we could have to reinforce, hey, we're here. Trust us. And we – the feeding just for a second, steps. Paul, what I thought was interesting was um, she – kept eating until she threw up. She was so used to starving and having limited food yes. supply that she overdid yes. it. Can you comment a little about that? Yeah, a lot of the, when we initially had her, it was so many things we were observing that was just, we could not make sense of it. And one of the things is exactly what you cite, which is that certain types of foods, she did not have an off switch, a sense of uh, being satiated. And so she, one time, my wife and I were trying to figure out what to do. We said, let's just see what happens if we let her eat until she says she can't eat anymore. And uh, there was no off switch. So she began to eat, 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 eat until she literally vomited. So the point is, is when you get kids like this, a lot of education to parents who are dealing with a kid who has been shaken up. And again, not only from adoption, my wife is now a licensed therapist and she deals with many different families. One of the amazing cases I found was actually military deployment. Uh, a parent who was de suddenly deployed overseas for a protracted period of time, came back home to a kid not exhibiting symptoms as serious as what we faced, 
but still exhibiting um, these symptoms. So uh, I think being aware of the phenomena you're looking at is critical. Just like with a medical issue, the first step is getting an accurate diagnosis. And this phenomena, at least to me, from everything I could find, was well buried when we adopted our daughter. How is is the reader or the public policy professional supposed to think about um, individual cases? I mean, obviously, in your book, you go into tremendous detail about a single child. But if we were doing some sort of social analysis, what I would say is we probably should look at all the children from that Russian orphanage and see the full spectrum of results as compared to an orphanage somewhere else, for example, and so we can make better decision-making. Is there something unique about your child? Is there something unique about that orphanage? Is there something unique about uh, attachment? How can we, uh, as an independent viewer of your, of your life experience, think about it? Yep. I think that, I think that the, uh, the key thing is to, is to say, A, does this phenomenon exist? And then B, to think about the, the evidence for it and see what are the social implications. So um, the evidence for it is, is probably some of the best is from the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, which the, the issue is having good longitudinal data on kids. What happened to the other kids in my daughter's orphanage? I don't know. But with the Bucharest Early Intervention Project, which you can Google and get the information, they're literally doing CAT scans of kids' heads, brains. And there was clear evidence that literally the longer they stayed in the orphanage, the more parts of their brain literally went dark. So Bowlby's initial theory that this tight connection, which was a hypothesis when he came up with it, has now been proven in terms of neuro research and in, in, in what happens with this. Knowing that when that happens, my big takeaway is if you want to level the playing field in terms of having a meritocracy, you need to recognize that children who have this amount of adversity early in their lives are at a massive disadvantage for succeeding later in life. So uh, I think if you look at um, prison population or poverty or high school dropout rates, my sense is, and there is evidence to suggest this, that the rates of these attachment disruptions are much higher, which is why, while I don't profess to be an expert, what Jeffrey Canada is doing with um, the Harlem Children's Zone, I think is such an interesting model because he's saying here are high-risk kids. If you want kids to be successful in fifth or sixth grade, don't get them tutoring in first grade. Begin speaking with the parents the moment they're pregnant. And that, to me, I think in this type of situation could have been a massive game changer. I want to uh, talk about uh, more about Russian orphanages specifically. Um, yep. You know, there's been some political issues. The Russians um, tried to reduce the number of orphans who are coming to the United States, making it much more challenging um, in response to some U.S. attacks against uh, Russia. And um, I'm just wondering, if you were going to advise uh, an adoptive parent, would you say, you know what, I, I know there's appeal of these cute Russian kids, but maybe you should reconsider and, and pick up an American one, uh, even if they're not of the same race. You know, it's, I'm telling you, these Russians' orphanages are a catastrophe. Stay local. Um, well, the, the first thing on the, the first part of your question, you're right that what happened was as a result of the Magnitsky Act, which is the yeah. Bill Browder-led effort to penalize Putin for uh, murdering his CFO uh, 
in response, Putin forbade all American adoption of Russian children, leaving uh, <laughs> the orphanage, which is just so so like mind-bogglingly self-destructive for those children. I, you know, it, 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 it's it's uh, tragic. Like a joke. Um, um, I think that the key thing is that um, uh, if you are adopting a child, uh, A, getting them early, or B, getting them from um, cultures where there is a tradition of holding children early on can make a huge difference. And so, you know, while I'm, listen, I'm, a, I'm, I'm an investor and I'm a dad writing this, I'm not an expert in global adoption. Um, my understanding, though, is it's particularly in certain cultures, for instance, Africa, if the parents die, somebody else is literally holding the child, carrying the child. That alone, according to the research, can make a huge difference neurologically in how they're treated. In Russian orphanages, and I described this in the book, where we walked into the orphanage the first day, there's 15 kids out there, and nobody, nobody is holding them. And that has devastating neurological impact on the child's brain development because it is so much related in a very tiny child to trust. And anybody who's raised a small child, that example I gave in the opening, is related to that. So I think, listen, you could have biological kids with a huge range of impact, but I think that trying to focus on uh, a, a childhood experience where the gap between uh, the child being left alone and getting to your home is as small as possible is going to improve your odds. But again, I wrote this book not only to be about adoption, but to be about families in general, because there are lots of other things that can disrupt uh, parents' ties to their child beyond adoption. I was thinking about your other public policy idea about more government intervention in the early, in the first year or so of a child. Um, yeah. And I, I think there's like this tension. Um, if we remove the child from the home and put them into some other social setting, um, yeah. it's not obvious to me that that care worker will be as loving and as um, thoughtful or as attached to the child as the mother um, yep. there's a cost benefit analysis associated with in the case of where you have a very poor mother and a fantastic caregiver. Um, but there's also a consequence of a, of a, of a, I'll call it the central case, which is a normal mother and a normal caregiver. Are we better off just in that first year specifically letting the mother drive the equation and make it a, a rare caregiver? I would say so, but absolutely leave it as close to the parents, but I would also say try to give them as much, support as you can. So for instance, if you have lower income uh, families that have food insecurity, or the mom needs to commute crazy hours to the job, I think that investing in a very redistributive way to make those early years have as much consistent contact with mom and dad and make them available, to me, is going to pay off massively in the country in terms of productivity. Because the difference between these kids who later on have all these truancy problems, and in our case, obviously, had, had, had legal problems, which is not uncommon, is enormous. So I wouldn't say separate the kids from the parents at all. I would say particularly with poor families or with families that have some life-changing disruption that you make very, very generous 
social support available to them. And of course, that could be abused some. I understand that there would be ways to that. But I'm saying if you look at the long-term payoff, just structurally what happens with a neurological makeup, that the each year that goes by, the kids become much more resilient. And I gave that example in the book of my wife being kidnapped in Pakistan. It's an unbelievable, <laughs> it's an unbelievable story. She's kidnapped, um, which did cause big impacts in, in, in her life. It's, it's obviously a very fundamental disruption, but nothing near like what happened to our uh, daughter. And of course, it's not, you can't do a scientific experiment because each of them has different makeup and IQ and resilience, et cetera, et cetera. I get that. But the big thing that my experience was, oh my goodness, if a child is disruptive in those first couple of years, no amount of intervention, summer camps, help, blah, 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 it's not going to help. It's already done. And that, I think, is the... Um, insight that Jeffrey Cannon had to the, the poverty that you're seeing in Harlem. On our show, I always like to end on a note of optimism. Um, so, Paul, what are you optimistic about? Um, the uh, writing down and learning from experiences, I think, has been huge. So what I've seen from this experience was, was it very hard for us? Absolutely. But it also changed us uh, markedly for the better, made our marriage better. My wife changed her career, became a licensed therapist, and has now helped hundreds of families through situations like this. And uh, it forced me to write this book, which both got me in the field of something I've wanted to do for a long time, which is write books, but also the reader feedback I've gotten from people all over the world that's read this has been unlike every, anything I ever experienced in my career as an investor. So all in all, it's been, it's, been a, it's been a difficult ride, but boy, does it change our approach to living, and I think for the better. What did your daughter think when uh, she read your book? It was, uh, she liked it, and which people find stunning. Yeah. Um, and I came up with the title for it before um, she had the, the run-in with the law. And there's a, the actually got asked this question on Book Talk so much, I recorded a podcast of her that you can hear on Apple and um, Spotify. It's called Things I Didn't Learn in School. And it's, it's the conversation with her. What she, I hadn't heard from her for uh, a couple of years. Uh, and, but I had posted on social media where she tracked this was coming out and she reached out to me. And I said, listen, I would love you to read this. Everybody else who's in it has read it and get your thoughts on it. It's very close to publication, but she read it and she said she wept after each chapter and that reading it really to Scott Turo's uh, point, I thought his thing about, listen, if it was a simple story, it wouldn't take 350 pages to tell it. You need to get into the grace. She said it was the first time she actually had understood our perspective as a parent. And uh, it, it brought us closely, more uh, closely together. So I think even in terms of our relationship with her, it was positive, though it was obviously hard. Scott, if you're still with us, uh, what note of optimism would you like to end on? Well, this is this is just an amazing story, and I, I don't I don't hear Paul saying that um, this is not something that can and does in fact occur uh, with birth families, where there's some how this fundamental disconnect early in development. I do have that correct, don't I, Paul? It can occur 
in, in birth families. And that's what actually what Bowlby was studying initially. So imagine a family, you have an infant and um, the mom is a primary, primary caregiver and God forbid she gets cancer and all of a sudden is in the hospital for a protracted period of time. Well, the infant doesn't understand anything. And while this, the severity of it might not be as intense with our daughter, it can and does occur in biological children as well. Yeah, because I'm writing a, a novel now where the mother of the main character was supposed to have been so engrossed with the mourning over her own mother's death that she just never uh, bonded with this child. Uh, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I it, that, that seems psychologically realistic to me. But um, the, so I guess the optimistic question is, and I will base this on my own experience um, doing criminal defense work, but how much hope do you have that as your daughter um, emerges into a mature adulthood that um, that she may be able to change for the better? Very modest, very modest. Um, what I've learned to see with her is, is distrust in the evidence, and it needs to be sort of objective third-party evidence. She's, in psychological terms, to this day, she's what's called not an accurate reporter. So you can ask her something, and the answer may not be connected to reality. And this is something... You know, Scott, and you're, if, if you're looking for more writing on this as you do your character development, Boldy, he, he, he passed away, but he's a great writer. And he wrote a three-part series sort of about his life finders, his life work. And he talks about this uh, uh, with kids. And so it's hard for me to know what's truly going on with my daughter because of the inaccuracy in reporting. But... I haven't seen a major shift. It's been very, very moderate, a major shift in the time I've known her. So I don't think that it would be right to be hoping for a significant turn. The the run-in she had with the criminal justice system does seem to have helped straighten her out a little bit because we had said to her when she was stealing all the time, hey, listen, at some point when you're an adult, this is gonna have real consequences. And I think she was skeptical and in her case, it did have real consequences. And that cause-effect linkage, like this is real, seemed to help some. But I've obviously, I would be elated if she could turn the corner, elated. But I don't hold out much hope. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you from experience, um, it does happen sometimes. And uh, Yes. It does happen. So I'll, that's the optimistic note that I would offer, Larry. I'll take it. Yeah. Okay, that that ends today's session. I want to make a plug for next week's program next Sunday on June 27th. We will be having two panels. Uh, the first is on China's growing military and political power. The first speaker is Luke Patey, who is the author of How China Loses, the Pushback Against Chinese Global Ambitions. 
One of the interesting aspects about the post-war U.S. hegemony has been the idea that the U.S. is working to create a liberal, open, global system with free trade and democratic elections that will allow each nation to be the best it can be. Chinese expanding political and economic plans are seen as nefarious by foreigners. I've asked Luke to use two case studies with Argentina and Kenya as to why locals are very suspicious of Chinese investment and why this may not end well for Chinese foreign policy objectives. Our second speaker on China is Hal Brands, who is the Henry Kissinger Distinguished Professor at Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, who will discuss his recent article in Foreign Affairs entitled U.S.-Chinese Rivalry is a Battle Over Values. Hal Brands is referring here to such values as democracy, freedom of speech, and in opposition to authoritarianism. Our second panel will be on Internet dating. Our first speaker on this panel is Tariq Shakat, who is the president of Bumble, which is a leading internet dating site where women drive the dating process. In other dating sites, men generally aggressively pursue multiple women at once, inundating females' inboxes. With Bumble, the females must initiate the original contact. Our second speaker is Susan Patton, who is the author of Mary Smart, Advice for Finding the One. Susan's book caused quite a stir because she encourages women to marry very young and to select their mate in college when women's value in the dating market is at its peak. She is reticent for women to play the dating game with frequent hookups that play to men's preferences. And our final speaker on the panel is Brad Schneider, who is the CEO of Nomad Data, which specializes in helping clients use new types of data to make an investment corporate decision. Brad is an active internet dater, and he will provide the male perspective to the current internet dating marketplace. If you're interested in learning or listening to a replay of today's What Happens Next program or any other previous episode or wish to read a transcript, you can find them on my website, whathappensnextin6minutes.com, and replays are also available on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and Spotify. Please check out our new social media outlet on Twitter at What Happens in 6. We want to engage our audience and hear your views and ask questions for the show. I want to create a community that learns together. I would like to thank today's speakers for their insights. I would also like to thank our listeners for their time and for engaging with these complex issues. Please stay tuned for next Sunday to find out what happens next. Thanks, Scott. Thanks, Paul. Uh, have a great day. You're welcome, Eric. Paul. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.